Thanks, everyone, and good morning. Um, usually before the sermon, we pray together uh, to invite God into our lives and into our words and into our speaking to one another. And I'd like to do that today, but I'd like to do it without words, um, to just spend a moment in silence to listen to my daughter yelling, uh, <laughs> or as she moves away, um, to listen to listen to the spirit inside, to listen to your soul. Uh, there are a lot of things about this psalm, this Psalm 51, and there are a lot of things that we're going to say about it, but one of the things to love about it, I think, is the passion and honesty with, with which the writer believes that their spirit is a real and living thing um, that, that is in need and that is in communication. So let's take a moment of silence and just listen to where God might be in us and to what we might have to say that we've been afraid to say before. Amen. Uh, this month we're on confessing, confessing our faith, confessing to God, confessing our sin, confessing our truth. Uh, and we're going to get to this confession that David offers in Psalm 51. But first I want to tell you the story of two other confessions. The first thing I think of when I think of confessing, both tellingly from children. So the first confession is my Uncle Joe, uh, who I just got the opportunity to see again this week at a family reunion. And he is just one of the kindest sweetest people that I know. Just, I mean, he gets angry like everybody does, and he gets irritated like everybody does, but he is a genuinely sort of uh, sweet person who wants to make other people feel better. And he, like my mom and much of my family, grew up Catholic. And so when he was, I think, seven Catholics, correct me, and was preparing for his first communion, um, a part of that is your first confession right, where you go into the priest and you confess, and they're talking about this in class with the priest, and uh, Joe says, I don't have anything, <laughs> right, like, well, well, I, don't, well, I don't have anything to confess, what am I going to say? And the priest said, oh, well, you know, you just say where, where there might have been some error in your life, and, uh, you know, have, have you been mean to your sister, his four sisters, or lied to your parents, and he was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't do any of that stuff. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't have anything. Um, and uh, probably he didn't remember. I'm sure that he actually had done some, done some of those things, but he was like, I, don't, I just don't have anything to confess. Um, and so the priest says, okay, well, you know, you think of something by the time you come in to go to confession, and then you'll be able to take communion because we have to be fully open before the Lord when we take communion. And Joe says, okay. And so he gets into the booth, and, you know, it's confidential, but also especially with seven-year-olds, priest knows who's confessing, um, and he gets in and he says, uh, this morning I took a bunch of rocks and I threw them at the church and I broke all the windows. <laughs> and, the, and the priest says, Joe, you know, and he kind of takes him, Joe, did that, Joe, that seems so unlike you, what's going on? And he said, well, I didn't really do that, but now I lied, and that's a sin, right? <laughs> uh, which is a great response to the need to confess. Um, and then the second story of confession of a child is one of me, which if you know me will not surprise you, and if you don't will help you know me, and the most embarrassing parts of my soul, which is that in fourth grade, or maybe fifth, I, uh, 
it was the first year that we were getting grades. So I was like on a very sort of like DEFCON 1 level stress alert at all times in school because I was sort of like, oh, this is like very important. This is very important. I'm really supposed to like satisfy all of the rules and the standards and the teachers and all the things. And we were taking a math test um, and we were each at our desks and we sat next to each other, all the little people taking our math tests. And I forgot, one of the questions had a bunch of numbers and then it said, take the average. I just could not remember what an average was. I couldn't remember it for the life of me. And I turned to the person next to me, sort of not thinking, and I said, what's an average? And they said, it's the same thing as a mean. And I said, oh, okay. And then I took the mean, and I continued on with the test, and I finished the test. And then I handed it to the teacher, Mrs. Lash, uh, one of those like teachers who changes your life. And, uh, and then after I had walked back to my seat, all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, that was a test. That was a test. That wasn't homework, that was a test. And I asked someone for help. No! And like little tiny Hannah was so distressed. And so little tiny Hannah ran to Mrs. Lash and asked her to go to the hallway. And I was like, I, I, I asked the person next to me, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and she was like, what is happening to this crazy child? <laughs> um, I'm so, so sorry. If you have to fail me, I totally understand. This is what happens. You gave me out of class. And she was like, I'll give you a C on the test. Like, like just calm down. Like, well, like, I'll get, like, here's a punishment. It's, a, it's done. Let's go back to class. You're fine. You're fine. It's fine. Like, we're fine. <laughs> and then we all walked back in. But I still remember, I, like, was singing her my own Psalm 51, right? I was just like, captured by the awfulness of what I had done, which I can now put in perspective. Um, but I think these two stories, these two kids, um, along with the testimony that we heard from Cameron, display many of the reasons why we're so afraid to invite confession into our life, why we're so suspicious of the idea that confession of wrongdoing could be something that could be embraced that could be healthful, that could be spiritually um, good and motivating and needed and required. Because the models of confession that we've gotten have not been that. <laughs> they have not been helpful. They have not been healthful. They have not been God-centered. They have not been about honesty. Um, they've been about a bunch of other stuff that makes us falsely believe that the idea of confession isn't worth having at all. Right? We either think that confession is about lying, that we either slightly under or slightly overdo what we've done and what has happened to us, um, or that confession is about pain. Like, think about that confession that I was doing when I was in elementary school. Was I sort of like, oh, hey, like, I committed a harm, and let's figure out how can we repair it, and how can I become a better person? No, I was like, punishment, punishment, punishment. Um, because that's what a lot of us are taught life is about, and confession is about, and being a good person is about, is inviting guilt and appropriate punishment into our lives. But that's not what God's vision of confession and wholeness is about, and that's not what Psalm 51 is about. David says at the end specifically, um, you do not ask for a burnt up offering. The idea is not that in confessing what has gone wrong or what we've done wrong or what we've been a part of that we think is away from God's ideal, away from the kingdom, that we burn ourselves up with shame and pain and blame and guilt. It's not the point, it's not the ask. Right? The ask is something more, which David calls a broken spirit. Um, 
And I would encourage us, because we know the greater story, to not think of that as a broken spirit, as in crushed forever, crushed and unable to feel joy. He's asking quite explicitly. He says, I know that you can bring joy and creation back into me, but broken in that it's broken enough to be open. Broken enough to be open to something new, like a cracked uh, surface that will allow for new things to become a part of it. Not broken in pain, but broken in openness, broken in the ability to let go of whatever the part of us or the idea of us that we thought was true before that has been holding us back and keeping us harming. Here's the problem, is that a lot of us identified in religious communities that we were a part of or in Christians that we know that hypocrisy is a problem, right? Like that, that that's a problem. Um, sort of acting one way and then talking another doesn't seem to go right. It doesn't lead to full lives. It doesn't lead to closeness to God. It's also just like irritating to watch. <laughs> and so we identified that hypocrisy was a problem, but then we sort of thought that the only other option is perfection, that you would make your words and your deeds match because your words are about being good and then your deeds should match them. But unfortunately, that's not an option <laughs> because we're humans. Doing all the things that you say are right, living the life that you want to lead, living into a world that you believe is the vision that God has for the world that has whole relationships and kindness and love at all times, that's not on the table. You just can't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. No one can do it because no one ever has done it. And expecting that we're going to be able to is a profoundly, awfully, and forever losing game. <laughs> So there has to be some other option between hypocrisy and perfection, and I think that that is honesty about the places where our desires and our deeds don't match. Honesty about the ways in which our hopes for the world and then the things that we actually do, the places we actually find ourselves in, aren't always the same um, in, an attempt, in an attempt to move on to more whole, uh, meaningful, and fruitful, and God-filled, and joy-filled, and creation-filled, as the psalm says, lives. Some of you know, but some of you don't, the story behind this psalm, which is that David, who was a leader of the people, a warrior, a king, um, known for being uh, chosen by God to lead the people, but not necessarily for being like an awesome guy, uh, did a truly and uniquely terrible thing that probably few of us have done which is that while he was home from war, he had skipped out on his, uh, so it, it kind of starts with miniature distances between who we think he should be and who he is. First is that he should be out with his armies. He doesn't want to be, stays home. The, and he's lounging about in an afternoon. And he sees a woman across the way to whom he's attracted, Bathsheba. And he uh, wants her. And so he sends a message uh, to her and she comes to him. Um, and in many ways, this is coercive. He's the king of the people. I don't know that she has another option. And so we, uh, I think, can call this sexual assault, quite honestly, what he does with her. Uh, and it is, it says, during her time of, of purifying, before her period, and she becomes pregnant, and she tells him, and her husband, 
is at the war that David was supposed to be at, Uriah. Yeah. Ooh, right. Uh, I don't know why there aren't more TV shows about biblical goings on because they'd be really good. Se like, to second total tangent, Grey's Anatomy needs a chaplain character like yesterday to deal with spiritual issues. But putting pop culture aside, um, David, uh, and in an attempt to keep this secret, to keep people from knowing what he has done, that he has uh, sexually assaulted someone, that he has been with another man's wife, moreover one of his soldiers, he s manipulates events so as to send Uriah to his death at war. And then Bathsheba comes to live with him. And at every step along the way, David makes the wrong and the harmful and the hurtful and the terrible choice and also, many of those choices are made to keep a former bad choice a secret. Many of those choices are made in order to keep things hidden. And so we begin to see that confessing to God our faults and our failures isn't just so that we might be honest people, which I think is a good in and of itself. It, being honest with God always, almost always makes things better. Um, but that being honest about our failures allows us to contain some of the damage. <laughs> because a lot of the damage from harm and failure and the ways that we come short comes in the part where we try to hide that, where we start to put on the mask, where we start to uh, gaslight people, right, and say, no, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be mean to you when I said that thing earlier. You just totally misinterpreted me, right? Because <laughs> we don't want to be honest about where we were at. Um, we don't want to be honest about the fact that maybe we were being like a little uh, whatever. Um, a lot of the harm comes in the secret keeping. A lot of the harm comes in the hiding. And so confessing to God isn't just about becoming the best version of ourselves and inviting God into the places where we fall short in our relationships and in our communities because those just exist. You are just mean to your coworkers sometimes. You do just not do what you tell your roommates or your spouse you're gonna do sometimes. You are a part of systems that are broken and harmful and awful and have harmed the world. Like those are just things that are true, right? Um, it's the hiding from that fact and the things that we put on ourselves to hide from that fact that cause additional and greater harms. And being honest about where we fall short doesn't just allow God to create in us a new heart, it keeps us from doing things that are even worse in some effort to convince ourselves that that's not really what's going on here, that that's not really who we are, that that's not really what we wanted, that that's not really the kind of person that we could be. Because all of us can be terrible people and that's not a source of shame or guilt, that's just a truth <laughs> about the world. I've done um, real harm, and really, I've said deeply cruel things to people. I have been racist. I've definitely been a part of systems that were racist, right, that contributed to um, our, our culture and our world and like unfreedom for thousands upon millions of people. I have been uh, not just mean, but I've been uh, slothful in ways that make other people's lives harder. And I'm not saying this because I'm unique. I'm saying this because this is definitely true of all of you too. It's just true of all of us. And, and running away to escape from that hasn't done us any good. It's understandable that it would be confusing because so many of us have been told either to, to confess things that aren't sins in the first place, 
like our sexual orientation or the fact that we're humans and have sexual desire or the fact that we have doubts about the Bible, right? Like none, those things aren't harmful. Those things don't take us away from God. Those things are deeply in the part of who God made us to be. And so when we get told to confess those things as sin, it puts a, you know, makes us doubt the whole process. <laughs> Why would we ever confess anything if we've been told to confess things that aren't harm? And the other thing that has put us against the, the but being able to believe in confession is that we somehow believe that if we confess one fault, if we admit how far we've been from who we want to be and from how we want the world to be, we think that everything will burn up and fall apart, right? We're like little fourth grade Hannah thinking that like our sin is the worst thing that has ever happened and if the people around us know they won't love us anymore, they won't talk to us anymore, our communities will see how gross we are and then it'll all be over. Almost everyone has that little voice. If you don't, like, power to you, you have had some good therapy and you are well-adjusted, you know? Um, but almost everybody has either um, been given a very false notion of what the categories of things are that are necessary for confession or a deeply false vision of what confession does to us and the kind of pain that it will cause us. When, in fact, real confession, confession like this, which is saying to God, God, from day one, I have felt that there are parts of me that just don't act the way that in my best moments I wish I acted, right? Here's what they are. <laughs> Here's what has happened. That is the most freeing, liberating, extraordinary thing of them all because it allows you to let go of all of that crust and gunk you've put on trying to convince people that you're awesome and that you've never made a mistake. Trying to convince yourself, right, that these things um, are either the worst thing that has ever happened or not really a big deal at all. Instead, you can just say, those are like a medium-sized deal. Those are a thing that I have done that also millions of people have done that I would like to try and do less of in the future. That is what sin is <laughs> in our biggest like, conception of who God is, our, like a medium-sized deal, right? Things that aren't great, that we've all done, that God desires to help us move forward from and that we'll never totally be free of, but that don't have to capture us the way that it has always. And confession helps you do that. Being honest helps you do that. I've been reading a book this week that I want to invite everyone to. Um, some of you may have read Parker Palmer before. Parker Palmer's great, wrote a lot about education, has a lot about spirituality. Um, he's a Quaker. Uh, so, but this book is called, it has like a million subtitles because that's why, how some spiritual thinkers roll. I don't particularly know why. A Hidden Wholeness, The Journey Toward an Undivided Life, Welcoming the Soul and Weaving Community in a Wounded World. A lot of words that start with W. <laughs> but, but... It's a great book, A Hidden Wholeness, um, and, and Parker Palmer's conviction, which I think is real, which I just feel to be true in my soul and that I see to be true in the stories of the scripture and the stories that God is telling in God's creation of us all the time, is that each of us fundamentally has brokenness that we act out of, right? Things that we do that we know aren't ideal. But also that inside of us, at the center of us, is our soul that he calls a hidden wholeness. A part of us always that is the image of God that is totally whole, totally joyous, totally centered, totally good, 
totally wonderful, and that's a part of us too. That's a part of us too. And by being honest about the cracked eggs and the icky stuff, <laughs> we can get closer and closer to that hidden wholeness that it's this, that's at the center of us, which is not perfect because we never can be, but which is whole and loving and good. That a lot of what keeps us distant from our soul is the voices inside of ourselves telling us what we have to pretend to be, what we have to look like, what we have to project, what we have to think. Um, the, and, and if we are honest enough with God, and then after that, each other, to get rid of some of that, um, we reach a core that might be more freeing. Some of you have followed Eugene Peterson this week, um, who I think is not an evil person, um, is an a evangelical thinker, a spiritual guide, uh, wrote the Message Bible that some of you may have encountered or some of you may have been prohibited from reading as a child, depending on the kind of community you grew up in. Um, and he uh, had, thinking on sexual orientation had never been a big part of his identity, but he was a part of conservative communities and had kind of said when asked that that was where he was at, that people should be straight. And uh, this week he had a long interview and folks around him have said that he has gone through years of, of thinking where he had come to a place where he believed that in fact um, God made gay people, which we know to be true, uh, and uh, bisexual people and trans people. I mean, I, who knows if he'd even have that conversation, but for him, right, God had made gay people. And he was asked by an interviewer if he would marry a gay couple if they came to him. Um, and he said yes. And people were, some people were joyous at this, others were skeptical, others were like, I, that person's not a person in my life. Um, and then a major publisher threatened to stop carrying his books, and a lot of people in his community, friends, family, and church, um, reacted quite strongly and quite negatively to that pronouncement, and by the end of the week, he ended up taking it back basically, saying, I, I, affirm, uh, I affirm the biblical witness, which he claimed to be um, that not all of us and not all of our sexual orientations were created by God, which is not the biblical witness. Um, and I think part of why he was able to turn back so quickly is not only the intense scrutiny and pain from his community, which is wrong, but I started to wonder if maybe he had never done the confession part of discernment that would be seeing the ways in which the beliefs that he had previously had cause harm to queer people and to queer communities all over the country and all over the world. Um, that he had sort of in his own alone, single place had thought about what do I believe? He had thought about his ideas and his ideas had changed, right? Um, his ideas about what the Bible said had changed, but he had not necessarily changed. He hadn't come to terms with the consequences of his former beliefs. He hadn't put himself in relationship with queer people who had been harmed by the church or queer people who had lived under the kinds of strictures that he had believed for so long. Because I think if you do those kinds of things, which is, confession is required, right? To, to get into that kind of stuff where we see how our former ways really caused harm, we have to be honest about what our ways are. That's what saves us from doing it again. As you can tell from the fact that it's so easy to do it again so quickly, that I think that part of the process never happened. 
confession's really important, <laughs> not just for us and our health and our wholeness. Um, you know, I try and confess all the time to Matt, I was such a jerk to you this morning, uh, and then I do it again, but I am on the path, right? I'm trying. Um, that confession is so critical, not only for us and our honest relationship with God, but for any ability we may have to move forward and be better in the future and cause less harm, and cause less harm to people. Honesty is required. So listen to your soul. Find it at the core. Find it in you. Find what your soul and your wholeness are saying. And you can only do that if you're honest about the icky parts that you don't want to look at too hard. You can only do that if you're honest about the parts and the things that you've done that you aren't super happy about. Not in a way where you're covered in shame and crying in a hallway and are a burned up offering before the Lord, but a place where you break open your spirit with total trust that when you do that, God's going to come in and create a new thing because you are a person God made and God loves you extraordinarily, no matter what those things are that you're confessing, right? There, you could come with anything and you would still be precious. You could come with anything and there would still be a part of you um, that has a lot of good to do and there would be an all of you that God sees and adores. So let's confess. Let's be honest. There's no harm that's going to come to us from it, but we might do a lot less harm if we do it, and we might be a lot more convinced that we are actually loved than when we pretend that we're only loved because we're so good at hiding all of that stuff. Amen? Amen.